Out of the gates and ready to go. The Tuesday edition of Hot Mike on the Outkick Network has arrived. Sutton and Withrow from Yeehaw and Old Smokey, 6th and Peabody, our location. If you're watching on YouTube, we thank you. If not, if you're listening, we hope you go to the YouTube page, subscribe, like, and share the channel. You can see all the shows there on a daily basis and on demand. Big show planned today. Michael McHenry, Major League Baseball analyst, Pirates broadcaster. He will join us coming up in 20 minutes. Uh, he does this every other week and a lot to discuss from the A's and the what's going to happen in their move to Las Vegas to the team that he covers on a daily basis. The Pirates on a roll and actually paying a big salary to a player for the first time ever, reaching a certain mark. That's coming up in 20 minutes. John McClain, the Houston Texans on the clock if you buy the fact that Bryce Young is going to be the number one overall pick. So who's going to be number two? John McClain joins us in hour number two. We'll discuss that and so much more with the NFL Draft. And the newest member of the OutKick team and our OutKick network, Charlie Arnault, she will join us in hour three to discuss her move to OutKick and all the big headlines. Chad, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hutton. Big show ahead. I like this guest list. Yes. Plenty to get into also. Yes. So we, the reaction to the Rodgers trade, we all knew it was going to happen, right? The formality and immediate... You dive into, okay, we were negotiating in the media for, and in fans at a bar. Chad and I would go out, we're talking about what we would give up to have Aaron Rodgers on the team to make that team a Super Bowl contender. So you immediately start to dive into what was given away by the Jets in order to receive the future Hall of Famer for at least one season. And in an era where you need a winner and a loser immediately on trades, I honestly believe it is a win-win for all parties and it includes you and I and all football fans for at least the rest of this offseason. There is no more Aaron Rodgers drama it, until next year because the Jets just signed up for it instead of the Green Bay Packers. The difference here is the Jets are hoping that drama begins in February and not in January like we've seen it happen for the Packers over the last three or four years with the, is he going to play? Is he happy? Is he disgruntled? Does he want the general manager fired? Is he going to return? Does he want to be traded? The Jets are cool with that as long as they win. And as far as the compensation, while the Green Bay Packers get what they wanted in what was, they get to move up two picks in Thursday night's draft. They swap first rounders. They get a second rounder and they get a potential first round pick next year. The Jets, they still have a first round pick this year. They still have a second-round pick this year because they held two of those. And, yeah, they'll give up a first-round pick if Aaron Rodgers next year is going to perform at a high level and play 65% of the snaps, which is going to happen, and for the aspirations that they, that they have for their team this year and the way they're built. And, Chad, I'm just thankful that, at least for today and at least for the next few weeks until we get to OTAs, mini camps, training camps, the Aaron Rodgers saga – with the Jets, has completed its full circle. The off-season cyclical storyline of Aaron Rodgers is once again closed. I think it's a win from the perspective of clearly the Jets getting the quarterback they coveted, and for the Packers to get rid of the headache you mentioned of Aaron Rodgers and not wanting the drama anymore. But only this is ultimately a win for the Packers if Jordan Love is good and worthy of a first-round pick they used on him. 
because I will go back to that fateful decision where they drafted Jordan Love without letting Aaron Rodgers know, and that drama with Aaron Rodgers started then and only then, and it's been ongoing ever since. So here's your chance, Packers. Here's your guy. Send him out there. Let's see if he's going to be an all-pro. Let's see if he's a guy who's got MVP capability because you drafted him when Aaron Rodgers was at the top of his game, and Aaron Rodgers went on to win two league MVP awards from that point on, and now he's gone. So while I agree where things sit right now, it is a huge win for both sides for the Packers to get what they got in return and get rid of the Aaron Rodgers drama and for the Jets to get that big-time superstar quarterback they've wanted for a long time to pair with a really good roster, it's only going to be a win for the Packers if Jordan Love is any good. And I just don't believe that. So the Packers are still the team left holding the bag and left wondering who their franchise quarterback is going to be. Now, if by the end of the year the Packers are in playoff contention and Jordan Love looks really good and like he's got a future in Green Bay, then yes, huge win for both sides if that's the case. I still have a hard time believing that's going to be the case, though. They're pretty good at choosing their quarterbacks. And sometimes, Chad, organizations just find certain luck. No pun intended. But when Peyton Manning left Indy, they had that year, and they end up with Andrew Luck, and everything is great up until he steps away and retires. But if you consider this. and then, But then they ran into what they ran into after that. <laughs> Post-Luck. No, no doubt. Has been a revolving door. And it may be that way for the Packers, fall, too. you fall forward, right? Sometimes you fall forward when you fall down. Uh, maybe Green Bay's headed towards that. But they, they also, I think it's important to note this. This is a guy who went into a, a darkness cave, a darkness retreat, and came out admitting, hey, when I went in here, I was 90% sure I wasn't going to play again. And now I want to be a New York Jet. You know, it's crazy how that happened. But that's what he said. He was leaning towards retirement. The Packers don't owe anything to the Jets if he only plays one year. And they're guaranteed something next year, even if the dude retires after one year in New York. That's a big win for Green Bay. And they get something and more than just something next year, even post-retirement in that scenario. I think he's going to continue to play. I don't think he wants to step away. I think he wants to win another ring. But Chad, the, the Packers, by making the move now, they had to figure out what Jordan Love's all about. He's going into year four. And they also, if he's not the guy, at least they know, and they didn't have to go through the saga again to determine if Jordan Love was going to be their quarterback or not. Yeah, it's a huge win for the league and people that follow the league Yeah, to get Aaron Rodgers with the Jets and to get the mystery of Jordan Love out there to see what he's like in one of the banner organizations in the league with the Green Bay Packers. So I think that part of it is a huge win for everyone that's not a Jets or Packers fan. Um, and in the short term, it's definitely a win for both the Jets and the Packers. Time will tell. Like you said, it could be a huge loss for the Jets because could be. what if Aaron Rodgers plays one ineffective year and decides at age 40, a year from now that he's done, and it did nothing for the Jets, and the Packers get this haul, and then Jordan, I mean, it could be just a win for the Packers in the end, or it could just be a win for the Jets. But I think right now, we want to crown it right now, and that's not reality. But I look at it right now with with the compensation and with what the Jets, what their goal is and what they got and what the Packers' goal was and what they got. And I'm with you on that. I think it is, it is a win-win in this moment. 
Chad, and, and the most recent example of you know it's draft week win, you would point to what today? I would point to the fact that a Reddit account that was started six days ago can post a Reddit post, and the name of this account is Sale Agreeable 2834 can post, and I quote, Will Levis is currently plus 4,000 to be the first overall pick. Well, ladies and gentlemen, he's telling friends and family, Carolina will in fact take him on Thursday. You're welcome. And that somehow we're going to link this to Vegas changing the odds for Will Levis. And maybe that is the reason Vegas suddenly dramatically changed the odds with Will Levis on being the number one overall pick. But you know that you have reached peak NFL draft fervor when a Reddit user that started six days ago can post something, it can pick up online like wildfire, and suddenly we're supposed to believe this as gospel truth. Now, if we believe the truth or the opinion that Vegas always knows something, I would point to, I wonder if Vegas has an in as to who that account belongs to. Mel Kuyper. And if it's someone... It's Mel Kuyper, who is Will Levis's uncle by blood test that we'll find out on Maury Povich at some point. But I wonder if they're plugged into saying they know it's someone in the Levis camp that posted. Because if not, who the hell cares if someone posted that on Reddit? Am I missing something here? Is, is there some uh, knowledge of who that person is that would know this? Or are we just grasping at straws like we always grasp at straws? Oh, the only thing that validates the post is what Vegas did with the odds. But I think the post is being used to point to, oh, here's an example of what Vegas knows the almighty Las Vegas odds makers know. Now, Bryce Young is still the odds on favor to be the number one pick for the Carolina Panthers. Um, Adam Schefter, a couple of weeks ago, went on ESPN and said, yeah, he's going to be the pick. Bryce Young's going to be the pick for Carolina. But Levis continues this, this climb the buzz, after all of the, to me, the perception is reality with him. Can you imagine having the, the fan base, top two picks, the entire offseason has been discussed with Young and Stroud and your team. Now, I'm all for it if the team is just going to own it and say, this is our franchise, this guy. Then you have to take him. But can you imagine if Carolina or Houston walks to the podium and drafts Will Levis and the reaction of the fans who are thinking what everyone else is for the last six months, eight months. We went with who over who? We went with this guy over Stroud or this guy over Bryce Young? It would be a disaster from a reaction standpoint from the fans. Uh, it, it screams uh, Mitchell Trubisky to me. And I think that if Will Levis were to go number one overall, it's not going to work, first off. And also, not only is it not going to work, I feel like someone else is going to be Deshaun Watson minus the masseuse problem. Like someone behind oh. him is going to end up being amazing and one of the highest paid quarterbacks in the game and a franchise quarterback for years and years. So not only did you miss yeah, by drafting Watson Will Levis was a top four quarterback and Will Levis becomes Mitchell Trubisky, yeah. but Deshaun Watson goes after Mitchell Trubisky, Will Levis being the Mitchell Trubisky of this year, Anthony Richardson or C.J. Stroud or Bryce Young, someone else going after, will end up being that player 
minus the off-field drama. Hey. That's the way I feel like that would break down. Now, I also, I don't buy it. I still just don't buy any of this. I, I don't think Will Levis is going to be the first or second quarterback taken. If he, Chad, if for some reason, and by the way, I, Frank Reich, to me, is a type of coach that fits the Will Levis mold of quarterback. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, that's why, you know, whenever there was discussion of, of Indy, when this is prior to Indy firing right midseason, that Levis was linked up with what Indianapolis was doing. You know, they're right up the road from where he was playing, all that. And it, it just seems like a quarterback that Frank Reich would coach, personally. Um, C.J. Stroud also fits that mold for me. Yeah. Bryce Young doesn't. But I do agree that Bryce Young's the best quarterback of this class. So, uh, in, in, in Carolina, you don't hire Frank Reich unless you're taking all of his advice on the quarterback that he wants. I don't, I, I don't know why else you bring him in, the veteran, former quarterback, veteran coach, and he's the first hire made of the offseason, and it's instant where I think he's leading the charge on the quarterback of their future. I don't think the... While the owner can come in and say, hey, I want this guy, more power to him, he's the NFL owner, I don't think they're doing that in this case. And maybe Frank Reich does surprise us, and he goes with a Will Levis. And then everyone must bow to Mel Kuyper. It would well, be amazing. I'm... It would be amazing that he called this in January, and the odds are now shifting towards that. He's the second... Yeah, odds-on favorite, second odds-on favorite for number one overall on the Tuesday prior to the NFL draft in 48 hours. Well, I won't bow to Mel Kuyper until five years from now. He's proven right that Will Levis is the best player in this draft that he said for months. Because this wasn't just a projection with him. He's saying he's the best quarterback in this draft. Yeah. Now, if someone agrees with him, let's say this is true, this That's Reddit I- poster and Carolina drafts him, and he turns out to be great. I don't think both are going to happen. I don't think either one's going to happen. Not only that, but trade up. Then I will. To go get I him. will absolutely say, boy, Mel Kiper was a hundred percent right about Will Levis, and I was a million percent wrong. But I just do not see that happening. And I'll say this about quarterback guru coaches. And you're right. This does not feel like the right type of quarterback for what Frank Reich has done in the past. I think guys who are supposed quarterback whispers doesn't matter. You give them ability, doesn't matter if they're a little bit more of a scrambler than a pocket player. If they have the moxie and they've got the, the throwing talent, I think good quarterback coaches can work with those quarterbacks. And Bryce Young is the best quarterback in this draft. So for that reason, Carolina's going to draft him. Frank Reich is going to coach him. And he's going to devise an offense that's going to work for Bryce Young. And Bryce Young, being the most talented quarterback in this draft, is going to do just fine under Frank Reich, even if Frank Reich hasn't necessarily coached a quarterback of the size and style of Bryce Young yet. I think we're sort of past the the quarterback guru or offensive coordinator in the NFL has to have this style of quarterback. I think everything is blending in enough to where you can get, if it's a good quarterback, regardless of the style, you can make it work for the best offensive coaches out there. Yeah, they- there are certainly some that would prefer a certain type well, and they've got, a, they've got a, a, a specific height, weight, yeah. pocket presence, pocket style type deal with them. I think other ones could just take the most talented player and make the offense work with them and get the quarterback 
to fit in with what they're doing as well. And that's what makes what's going on in Houston so interesting with Bobby Slowick as the new offensive coordinator, who was the passing game coordinator when Mike McDaniel was the run game coordinator. They're very similar in the the overall process of that McVay-Shanahan offense. And for them to pass up on the QB while bringing him in, D'Amico Ryan's bringing him in to run the offense, that's also fascinating if that were to happen. A, a lot of discussion on this will happen whenever John McClain joins us in hour number two. When we come back, Michael McHenry jumps aboard and we talk about the Pirates and Las Vegas getting the Major League Baseball team, the A's on the move. That's next on Hot Mike. Charlie Arnott will be with us in two hours. Newest member of the Outkick Network. John McClain coming up in an hour from now. Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow rolls on from 6th and Peabody with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Talking Major League Baseball with our great friend Michael McHenry. Broadcaster extraordinaire for the Pittsburgh Pirates, AT&T Sportsnet, Major League Baseball analyst and more. Good to see you, Mike. Hope things are well. Uh, good to see you guys. How, how are we doing? Solid. What? Uh, I mean this in all sincerity. What's it like covering a Pittsburgh Pirates team that feels like a playoff? Has some life. I'll tell you right now, it feels like I'm playing again. Mm. I get so fired up and so excited watching these guys play. And it's an exciting brand of baseball. They're running, they're pitching well, they're doing the little things, all the things you want to see as a as a fan, as a former player, and as a Pittsburgher now. I mean, these guys are really doing things right. And they're leading with pitching and defense. We've always been told that. Ladies like the homers, but championships are won by pitching and defense. It's exactly what they're doing. And that man right there, one of my good friends, Andrew, coming back. Reynolds signing a $100 million deal. It's the first one in franchise history. So there's a lot of good buzz going around Pittsburgh right now. And a lot has to do with the fan base loving this team and the culture they've built. And also the fact that they're winning. They expect winning here. It hasn't been the norm. Hopefully this changes that trend. You mentioned Reynolds with the eight-year extension, $100 million. Up until today, the Pirates were one of four organizations that had never handed out a $100 million contract. Now there are three, the Royals, White Sox, and A's. I was surprised of the list, especially in this era of Major League Baseball. Yeah, it is a surprising thing. You see all the extensions going around right now, especially for younger guys. So I think there was a sense of urgency in that front office, obviously with Reynolds, who is a Nashville native, he's a simple dude. He doesn't want to get in that big market, deal with the media. If you've ever heard him in an interview, he does not enjoy it. So the fact that he can stay in Pittsburgh, stay in a smaller realm, and the media really respects who he is, I think that was his bottom line. Like, he wanted to do that, and they finally worked out a deal. He didn't get everything he wanted, neither did the team. But in the, at the end of the day, you can't have a more excited fan base right now because what's the big – uh, I guess, elephant in the room when you talk about these small market teams, they don't spend money. Well, now, last year, they spent money on Key Brian A's, $80 million for eight years. Now they are spending money on rentals over 100, I think it's 107 for eight years. So they've got a good core now to last them some time. Well, Hutton mentioned the A's is one of the clubs who's never dished out a $100 million contract, one of the three left. Are they going to start dishing those out now that they're going to be the Vegas A's? Moving forward, what, what, is, what does that move do for them 
And, and what do you feel when you look at the Oakland and Bay Area fans of the A's who just really got dealt a crummy hand in this whole deal, Michael? They really did. And they, they have this knack for being wild there. I mean, the stadium's just way too big. So you don't even realize if there's 20,000 people there, it still feels empty. We're at PNC, we hold 36 to 40. So if you have 20,000 people there, they're on top of you. It's kind of nice. But in Oakland's just not that way. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on around the stadium. It doesn't feel safe. So a lot of people don't want to go. It's not very convenient. So they could have done a really different job by maybe just moving the stadium, rebuilding in that area and leaving baseball in Oakland. So much tradition there. There's so much history there. I think it would have been really neat if they could have done it. But now that they're going to Vegas, I would, I would assume they're going to do exactly what Texas did. They're going to go all in. They're going to go sign some big free agents. They're going to do everything they can to trade off the talent that they have that they can't control over the next year or two to try to grab as many players to literally walk into Vegas and start winning because they're going to have to set a tone immediately or that fan base around them is not going to be there. I want to go back to the NL Central because earlier in one of our visits with you, you had mentioned that you're not worried at all about the Cardinals. They're 9-14 and 14 right now. Are you starting to worry a little bit about them, or do you still feel like this is an organization that's going to figure it out and be right there in the NL Central race at season's end? They're going to figure it out. They have some really talented young arms in the minor leagues that they may push a little bit quicker than normal just because they're not pitching well. And they can't hit their way into a wild card game or a division win. You know, when we played them, they, they were hitting just fine, but we were out hitting them. And the reality of it is you can't win Major League Baseball games like that. They thought that they could, you know, maybe piece together a really good staff, including Adam Wainwright, Michaelis, and these guys that could pitch to contact because their defense is so good, but they're not keeping the ball in the yard. And at the end of the day, when you can't do that, that's a big, big problem because that scores a run if, if anybody out there doesn't realize that. And I think you can't bet against them, but they're in a very, very tough place right now, especially with their pitching. They got to figure that out because the biggest thing, guys, is – down the line, they are wearing their bullpen thin right now. We did that last year in Pittsburgh, and it really crushed us in those later months in August and September, even though we weren't a winning team. But if you are a winning team, that bullpen is what matters the most down the line, and they're wearing them out right now. Michael McHenry with us talking MLB on Hot Mike with Hutton and Withrow. So uh, of the teams that have started slow, what what's the clubhouse like to begin in April whenever you have big aspirations, big expectations? and things are slow to begin and you're trying to figure it out? I think that's where culture really matters. I think if you look in San Diego, if you look in uh, Chicago with the White Sox, two teams with juggernauts. They have some incredible players, some guys that can do some big things individually, but there's no collective team. If they don't come together, they're not going to wiggle their way out. They may play their way out, but you're just waiting for that final fall. And then in the playoffs, that's when culture really matters. That's when that camaraderie, that brotherhood is really going to take a next step. That's where when you see the Braves struggle or you see St. Louis struggle, you can't worry because those guys have a different type of feel in their clubhouse all the way from the front office down into the minor leagues. They care for each other. And that's the biggest thing, especially down the line. If you're not playing for each other now in some way, shape or form, when you get to the playoffs, it's not going to be there. You have to build that camaraderie over a season. And when you walk in the playoffs, you're living and dying for each other. So the AL East right now, the Rays are 20 and 3. Hutton's Orioles are in second at 15 and 7. Blue Jays 14 and 9. Yankees 13 and 10. Red Sox 12 and 12. Last place in that division is 500. 
with the balanced schedule now in Major League Baseball, is this a division that everyone in the division could finish above 500 this season, top to bottom, when you look at the AL East? Absolutely. I mean, I love the fact that they're doing this. I think it's going to turn into no NL, no AL at some point. It's just going to be Major League Baseball, just because the rules are are similar. Everything's starting to change. But yes, the, the AL East, I would even say the NL East, same way, both sides, maybe not Miami, but those teams, as they build, are going to be able to win a lot more games. I mean, they're juggernauts, and they have a lot of money. The fact that they have both things going for them, yes, th- those teams are going to get absolutely on top of everything. I don't know if you saw the video, speaking of Hutton's Orioles, but uh, Jim Palmer on the call just going ballistic on the umpire uh, who throws an Oriole out for just standing and kind of looking back at a call, a called third strike. Um, how irate does this make you, Michael, uh, having been right there as a catcher in Major League Baseball, right there with the umpire so much, when you see or hear an umpire just going a bit too far with their power and getting a little power crazy over the course of a game? Well, let's be honest. If I'm on the other side of it and I'm catching, I give a little fist pump, you know, because I got the calls and I got that out. That's all that matters. And I'm playing that game all day long from pitch one or even prior to pitch one, I'm in this guy's head. Hey, man, that's a great call. We just stay on the edge right there, really hung in on that pitch. And that's what it's all about. It's those mind games. That's why I do not believe in the automated strike zone. And the reality of it is I do like a rule that came in in the Arizona Fall League just a couple years ago where they can challenge it. I don't know how they balance that out, but I still think they should put a siren or a foghorn at the top of a center field wall and – if it's a ball or a strike, they show it on the screen and then honk that horn, very similar to hockey when they score a goal. Let those guys have some accountability. So one thing umpires don't have enough of, there's no accountability when they do get it wrong, when they are bad. Yeah, they may not get as many plate games in the playoffs or they may get voted in to, to maybe serve as an umpire in the playoffs, but they still get paid all year long, no matter if they're good or bad or if they're the bottom tier. And that's what they need to find the balance with. They need to share that more. You want to find something that's really cool? Umpire scorecard on uh, Twitter gives you a rating of every single umpire, and you'll see trends of guys that can really catch, really receive. They'll they'll get a plus on on the given day based on that umpire because they understand where he's going to call pitches, where he's going to miss. But I remind you guys, at our childhood, you could watch Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, those guys pitch, and they would get four feet off the plate, but they would earn it. And I do miss those days as well. So Rob Manfred says that, hey, there's no confusion about the rosin rules when he was asked about Max Scherzer's suspension. Um, There absolutely is confusion because it's umpire to umpire, right? And the the tackiness of an umpire and how he deems this to be sticky substance on a hand, on a pitching hand versus what another guy may say, that would vary crew to crew, guy to guy, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And, and the fact there is no, there is no standard and without standards, it's literally just an opinion or a choice on that given day. And the fact, here's the problem guys, the fact that they made Max Scherzer wash his hands with alcohol and didn't realize the substance of alcohol and rosin was going to make his hand completely like cake sticky or the ball just won't even leave your hand. It's remarkable that these guys haven't been testing these theories, figuring it out. And here's the coolest part. Japan already has a tacky baseball. Maybe just call up their league and say, hey, 
what type of tack are you using on your baseball? You guys seem to have this figured out pretty well. We want to try to get it right. I don't know if it matters that they get it right. I think they like the storylines, but there's no fan on the planet of the New York Mets that doesn't want to see Max Scherzer pitch. And the fact that you threw him out of the baseball game after warning him three different times and think in the fourth inning he came out with stickier substance on his hand is an absolute joke. I do respect him for taking the, the punishment and moving on, letting his team just continue to play well. But the reality of it is the arbitration process is terrible also because it is one-sided. The arbiter is absolutely picked by MLB. There's really no representative for the player, and it's deemed on their accord, period. So it's it's a messed up process. They need to fix it. It's not fair to the players. It's not fair to the fans. And if they don't have a way to combat you know, what the standard is, it really isn't a rule. It's just a suggestion. How much is this still affecting the pitchers? Have they adjusted to it or not? This rule? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it was as big of a deal as they made it to begin with. You know, they were talking about spider tack. I've been in the game for almost two decades now, and I'd never heard of it. I had to look it up. You know, I saw guys use rosin. I saw them use baby oil. I saw them use Vaseline. They've used hair product. I've seen a little bit of everything. But the reality of it is, if you put water on your jersey, hit yourself with rosin, grab that jersey, you are sticking to your jersey. So just the natural elements that you get to use on a given day is as tacky as you could ever want it. Some guys maybe would put some stuff that wasn't tacky to create a little bit more slip or a little more spitball. But if, if, if you don't look at it for what it is, it's been the same way for so long and they're overcomplicating it instead of just keeping it simple, create a simple standard. What is, what is too tacky mean? You know, can we put that threshold there? If not, then just let these guys go play. The spin rate, spin rate stuff is not even a good way to look at it because the deviation game to game is completely uh, 100 to 200 RPMs. It's just not right. I'm sure you've caught pitchers from, you know, Little League ball on in your life. At what age did pitchers start worrying about substances on their hand in, in pitching? Because this was not really a thing. I, I didn't obviously play to your level, but at what age did pitchers ever worry about rosin and the traction on their hand and the ball and, and everything else? When, when did this become a thing, and how did it just completely infest Major League Baseball to the point that every pitcher is obsessive about the, you know, the, the moisture levels on their fingertips as they pitch a baseball? Listen, when you're playing in dry weather, like Colorado, um, L.A., San Diego, San Francisco – it's dry. Those balls do feel like cue balls. And there's no real way to, like, I guess, make these clubbies who rub up the baseballs with mud have a standard. So they all rub it up different. Sometimes the balls are caked. Sometimes they're it's dry mud. Sometimes it's wet. So they do get a different ball constantly. So I understand that. But I would say when this all started is when they could quantify more. Every time there's a anal analytical or metric advance, there's also a huge problem. because it's always the, the new standard. It's the it's the greatest thing that ever came. They're always trying to prove their worth. And I think the khaki pants are sometimes a problem. They've helped the game in some ways, but they've also hurt it. Because if they don't go out there and throw the baseball and understand it, they shouldn't be saying, well, the spin rate is up. Blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, because these guys can actually train differently. They can affect that in the offseason. It's not necessarily something they just put on their hand. I mean, what about the six months of work they just put into that pitch? But they don't look at it both both ways, and I think they should. So, was the big leagues was the first time you experienced this? Was it college? Was it the minors? When when do you oh, remember pitchers being obsessive about time. it? 
Yeah, minor Myers. leagues. There were some guys in the in in college that would use scuffs, and you know, I, I'll I'll sit here and tell you right now. I used to try to scuff the ball for guys. I would hit the ground as I threw it back. I'd hit my shin guard. I would bounce it to second base. Whatever I could do to give my guy an advantage, that's part of the game. If they don't catch it, it's their fault. People say, oh, you were cheating. I was like, no, everyone else was doing something similar. You can't go to a game and not see pine tar on a uh, catcher's shin guard or behind it or find some way they, they get tack on the ball. A lot of these guys do it, maybe not anymore, but when I was playing, it was evident everywhere. I don't know if you remember the game that Molina's chest protector, the ball stuck on it. That's that's really hard to do. We tried it after the fact. I couldn't figure out how much stuff he had to have on his chest protector for that thing to stick. It was like a Velcro. Dink. Michael, how many players are going to want to play in Las Vegas? Uh, I would assume all of them, especially the single ones. Yes. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I feel it's like a that is to play. A, yeah, for, for especially for the long major league season and the state of the art billion dollar stadium that they're building. Like to me that. The A's can be really good if they want to spend some money. Yeah, and think about it. They're going to put betting in, in that stadium, too. The Reds just did it. They have a, a sports book in their stadium. It's a huge hit. I think that's going to be a trend around the league. But in Vegas, I think they'll set a new standard for that and, and the way that they go about it and the money that will be pouring in because betting is huge right now in sports. And the fact that it's open-ended to a certain extent in MLB, I think that's going to be a huge push. Yeah. It's, but yet Pete Rose is – Still Pete Rose. Well, now you got me wanting to go to Cincinnati for a game, and I haven't said that in years uh, now that I know they have a sports book in the stadium. So it, that worked on me. <laughs> Fair enough. That's great. Hey, man. Yeah, Pete Rose is the problem. They got to figure yeah, that out. I, I agree. Yeah. Hey, thanks as always. Always enjoy the conversation and uh, the back and forth here, and we look forward to the, the next chat in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. There's the Fort, Michael McHenry, Major League Baseball Analyst at the Fort McHenry on social um, and I love the fact that, you know, he's trying to help out the pitchers and how he would do it with the shin guard, scuffing it, trying to hop it to second. And I've seen catchers do that where they like go down and sort of swat down on their, their, yeah. uh, their thigh guard, their, their shin guards as they go it, up to throw it. It makes sense. Also like the, the different, it's like a kicker, the quirkiness of the way the pitcher wants the baseball, all of them. With the league controlling the manufacturing of them now, I just don't know what to trust and what not to trust anymore in regards to that, the control of the ball. I, we, I could spend an hour or a day with Michael just asking questions about being a catcher. Yeah, like the, Even the origins of it, because I deal with this now with little kids. Like If you decide you want to devote yourself to being a catcher, you're going to catch on any youth team that you're on. Because no one wants to do it. And if you go get the equipment and decide you want to learn how to do it, you can start. So is it an opportunity thing? Is it because you're the chubby kid and your coach makes you go play catcher when you start out? You know, how just going through that life of catching at a young age and never stopping. And I feel like once you get cast as the catcher and you go on every little league team and travel ball team, you're the catcher. If you're good at catching, you're going to be the catcher no matter what, and there's not a lot of flexibility to different positions, and it just seems so miserable to me. So I'm, I'm fascinated by catchers and how they get into it. And now you got guys who are really good athletes yeah. that are catchers also. Makes my knees hurt thinking about it. Yes, JT Real Muto is one that comes to mind. There are guys who are bigger guys, you know, taller guys that are really good catchers over the years, but 
I think just starting out and doing it and making the decision to do it. How did you did you get picked to be a catcher? Did you decide you wanted to be a catcher? How do you fall into it and then staying with it for that long into adulthood and being a major league catcher? It fascinates me and little things like what Michael was just telling us about scuffing the ball for his pitchers and learning the investment of, of, of training for the throw to second. And now with the rules adjustments, it's kind of you're kind of screwed as a catcher. And and you will see watching any major league baseball game, there's a lot of conversation between catcher and umpire. Over the course of the game. Oh, yeah. You'll see them kind of making each other laugh at different times, even in between pitches or in between batters. Coming up, another issue at Alabama for their basketball program, but Nate Oates is treating this one differently. Details next on Hotline. Chad, a transfer from Wichita State to Alabama for hoops arrested on Saturday for marijuana possession misdemeanor and he's since no longer going to be a part of the program Tuscaloosa police found him and two others in a vehicle in Reed Street with marijuana and multiple guns and Nate Oates said he's not going to play for the Crimson Tide Jalen uh, Jaquan Walton is his name and um convenient you know, that this was such a quick decision for a Very guy fast. who wasn't uh, starring for them currently in the middle of a season the way Brandon Miller, who also had a weapon in his car, was not kicked off the team or punished in any way at all, not even suspended for a single game. Yeah, not, not arrested, not, nothing in regards to that. Um, and in this case, it did happen. There is a police report and all that, and Nate Oates said, yeah, he's not going to be a part of the program. But well, Nate Oates, I don't know that he learned from his mistake or if he's just been told or is saying, like, I, we can't even touch this now because of all the heat that's on our program after what went down last season. So now he's not going to be. And this was a guy who was, I mean, highly sought after. Yes. And when they got him, it was a big deal and he was going to be a big part of their team. So um, look, I, this is Alabama has a culture issue right now. That, that's, that's what I see here. Like, it wasn't – if it was just a murder involving one of their players, that's a culture issue. But the fact that there were multiple teammates out with that player that night, one of which who brought the gun back to the scene of the crime, that was also the star player who's now going to the NBA, and now you bring in another player and they're just out in Tuscaloosa with tons of marijuana and a loaded weapon, I, it just – I mean, I, I don't – see the defense here right now of Alabama basketball under Nate Oates. It's a guy who has brought in really talented players and players who are living on the edge, quite frankly, some of these guys. And it's not, it's not a good look, and it's something they got to clean up. And I'm not going to give them credit for it because I think it's more of a PR move than anything else, saying he's not going to be a part of the program. But making sure that this player's not going to – that Walton's not going to be on this team, yeah. that's step one in eliminating the problem of the culture that you have. Setting a different tone. This is a program with a bad culture right now. That, that's, it's that simple. They won a ton of games. Culture's bad with everything that happened off the court last year and now with this story. But at least maybe, trying to look on the bright side here, maybe Nate Oates did learn from his mistakes a year ago and decided, yeah, I can't have this lingering him, and hanging around. The, the entire universe. The whole thing. The handling of it. Was maybe awful. they all, they're never going to admit they were at fault, but they are, and they all screwed it up. The university on down, university, the athletic director, 
and NATO screwed this thing up, botched it from the beginning a year ago, maybe they, even if they're not going to admit it, learn from their mistake, and now they're showing that they learned from that mistake and saying that Jaquan Walton will never be a part of their program. Chad, Morgan Wallen uh, canceled, you mentioned this at the end of the show yesterday, canceled the, the show in Oxford, what, two minutes, three minutes prior to it being scheduled for him to go on stage after the opener had played, um, and they put up on the, the screen, hey, we're sorry to announce that Morgan Wallen will not be able to perform tonight. He's lost his voice. You know, contact the, the ticket uh, distributor to get a, a refund. There's a woman who's saying, hey, it's more than just a refund of tickets that I am owed. Here's an itemized bill for you. Uh, Mandy Nowlin says, hotel, $560, two tanks of gas uh, worth 80 That's, I mean, the bargain right now, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, four tickets, 1600 Must be a small car. Her outfit that she chose and went and purchased, $120. Come on. Uh, the husband's outfit, $218 Come on, for the husband's more. outfit. Uh, Got some embroidered uh, jeans. They went to Oxford Grill House, spent $235 on dinner. Cracker Barrel, $40. Uh, a Mexican restaurant for $45. <laughs> Los Paraleros. Rebel Flags, <laughs> $629. And then, because we wouldn't have had the opportunity to go had it not been for this concert. For Rebel, uh, for Rebel, Rebel Rags. Oh, Rebel Rags. Not Rebel, uh, Re- Rebel Flags is what I thought. Well, that also was probably on here somewhere. Yeah. Must uh, have been really authentic Rebel Flags for $629. $220 worth of drinks. And then merch. This was something I thought of. You know, the merch that people would buy prior to it being canceled. $235. And a grand total of $3,982. My husband has gone with me to two concerts ever, she says, in the 17 years we've been together. Somehow I talked him into this one, and this bleep happens, is what she said at the end of it. I understand the anger. And here's what I don't understand about Morgan Wallen's side of this. How do you let this thing go until you're about to walk on stage, and then you flash that the concert's canceled? Like, things happen. People get sick. They can't perform. Whatever. I'm not going to sit here and speculate about what went down or what happened, but you have to know hours before the concert, something bad is happening and I may not be able to perform. So you're telling me that they play the opening act and before he's going to march out there is the first time he knew, hey guys, my voice doesn't work and we're not going to have a concert. I think the timing of it is terrible. They could have done this before everyone went to the stadium. And canceled the show for that night. Yeah, 60000 there. Uh, and he just said the country singer lost his voice. Um, I don't... I'm with you. The whole five minutes beforehand is strange. Makes me think like they were I, thinking I, he was also, actually going to go try and do it and then last minute didn't put you him know, out there. I, I, look, this Mandy woman who posted this, I also just feel like maybe don't spend four grand on Morgan Wallen. But, I mean, like, if you're going to expect a refund right away, like maybe you're not in a position to spend four grand on Morgan Wallen. Like I just, I, I doubt that expenditure. Just listen to his album over and over if you want to. Wait till he comes to your town. Well, I would and say don't spend like, two pl- two uh, tanks of gas and hotel and all of this on it. But also spend it on whatever you want to spend it on. Whenever you're thinking that you're showing up to see him play live. Yeah, the well, opening it's act, like the opening act is already off the stage. You're waiting on the lights to go down, and you also enjoyed the dinner that you had, the drinks that you had, everything else. Like you got that, so he, that shouldn't be refunded. You you experienced the food and drink in the hotel. 
Like, I don't know that that part is on Morgan Wallen to pay you back. Like, you had a big night out because of Morgan Wallen with your husband. You had that night and you paid for it. He's not paying for that night again. See my point? Get your tickets and you got. It's not like you paid for the drinks; they didn't hand them to you at Rebel Rags or yeah. wherever you went. Rebel Flags, Jeff. Yes, also seven hundred on Rebel Flags. <laughs> Headlines next, including what about Lamar Jackson now? <laughs>